Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, July the 28th, 2023. If it's Friday, it must be Culture Day. It's always Culture Day, a keen on, of course. Earlier today, I had a conversation with the music journalist, writer Warren Zanes, Deliver Me From Nowhere, the making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, his iconic 1982 album, which he recorded uh, in a bedroom in New Jersey, an anonymous bedroom. Uh, we're shifting from music to art now. Not far from New Jersey, of course, is Manhattan, the southern tip of Manhattan, a place called Coenties Slip, a street in the financial district of uh, Manhattan. I have to admit, I'd never heard of the street until I came across a new book called The Slip, the New York Street that changed American art forever by my guest, Prudence Pfeiffer. She... Uh, her day job is at uh, MoMA in New York. Uh, she's an art historian, writer, and editor. She also calls herself a spy, and she's been spying on the history of 20th century art. Uh, Prudence, welcome. Congratulations on the new books. Already getting rave reviews in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal today and yesterday, so you must be feeling uh, anything but slippery. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's really Pleasure to be here. Uh, Prue, I, I promise not to make too many slip, slip jokes, but I can't resist. So tell me about the slip. Are you the first person to notice it? Uh, I mean, obviously, the artists who lived there in, in the late 50s and early 60s are familiar with it. But I have to admit, I, I knew nothing about it. But that probably reflects my own ignorance. Well, I think it's always... In, it's been a kind of footnote in art history, so it comes up in little places here and there. And then I really first came upon it when I was working at Art Forum and we were putting together a tribute for Ellsworth Kelly, who had just passed away, and we asked Robert Indiana to contribute something. And he sent in this photograph uh, from his time living on Coenties Lip, uh, right next to Ellsworth Kelly. And I just, you know, something sparked in me to think, what a what an interesting pairing of two very different artists living in the same space. And yeah, what is this sort of strange sounding street? And then I read a really wonderful biography of um, Agnes Martin by Nancy Prinsenthal that had a little bit more info. And there was a lovely um, small show at the Manil um, that brought together artists as well from this street. But there wasn't really one place where the full story was told and particularly the relationship between the different artists there and also the history of the street for New York because I suspected, especially with this uh, Dutch name, you know, that there was something um, deeper and, and probably pretty compelling around um, that history too. So, so yeah, that's, um, but it isn't, I don't think it is very well known, maybe outside of very specific art historical circles. So it's exciting to have a chance to hopefully bring it to a broader readership. Yeah. Um, one of the things that came out of my conversation with Sainz was that art has a mind of its own. The history of Springsteen's Nebraska is a very odd one where no one quite knew they were making an album and then it just kind of popped out, hit it 
acquired its own logic. Is, is that true of the movement um, that uh, congregated on this small street uh, on uh, on on the southern tip of Manhattan? Did they did these artists know what they're doing or knew what they were doing? Yeah, I think that's such a, a beautiful way to think about history, actually, is the kind of accidental. And certainly they did not consider themselves, this was not a movement and the artists. So we're doing very different things. So you have Eldreth Kelly, who's uh, making, you know, straight edge, usually singular color plane paintings. You have Robert Indiana, who actually came to the slip as Robert Clark and kind of literally became Robert Indiana in his time there and was making um, these really incredible assemblages and other paintings before he turned to the work, the kind of love uh, sculptures that he's probably best known for around the world. And Agnes Martin, who was um, painting sort of more abstract expressionist um, kind of color field paintings. And then when she came to the slip started to really make these um, incredibly pared down grids that were really totally stunning. Lenore Tawney, who's working in fiber arts, making these in incredibly um, ambitious uh, textile works. And uh, Jack Youngerman, who is painting um, these almost organic explosions of color and jagged edge. Um, James Rosenquist, who came a little bit later to the slip in, in 1960, um, and who started to you know, do these incredible mashups of commercial culture. So, and then Delphine Serig, who was an actor in Paris before coming to the slip with Jack Youngerman, her husband, um, where she continued to um, look for work as an actor and ended up starring in you know, one of the quintessential beat uh, movies of the time, Paul My Daisy. So they were all doing very, very different things. And um, that's also what really interested me about this moment and all of them being together. Um, but there was, a, there was, I think, a lot of ambition. There was a lot of interest and influence between their work. And um, there was a way in which, as I you know, argue in my book or, and, and believe that this very particular geographic location of Coenty Slip on the very edge of Manhattan, of Southern Manhattan. And it used to be a waterway, you know, as, as the sort of definition of a slip is that was filled in. And it was sort of, it was such a obscure place then, really, um, you know, fairly unknown even then in the time that they were living there, that it, it afforded them the kind of freedom to be, you know, experimenting and, and really working on their own in their spaces, these old sail making lofts and chandleries. Um, and really experimenting and, and coming into their own um, in a moment that when obviously there's quite a lot else going on in New York, but um, that then would go on to really also influence you know, how we think about art history and um, what, what's happening in American art. Prue, it's almost as if uh, an, a novelist could have written this, these, these group of, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, this group of rebellious artists hanging on to the very southern tip of Manhattan, symbolically. Um, the, the New York Times review that came out yesterday, they said it's a very nice review, uh, quotes Alfred Barr, uh, the founding director of MoMA, where you now work, uh, saying in uh, 1958, I look forward to a rebellion 
contextualize the period in terms of the history of, of modern art. What was happening? Who were these people collectively? And what were they rebelling against or for? Yeah, well, it was a really you know interesting moment in New York City. So after World War II, suddenly there was kind of the, the narrative, the grand narrative of, of art history, of Western art history, you know, cites this shift away from Europe and, you know, famously Paris as the kind of, you know, um, center of modernism to New York and these, you know, a, a, another crop of fresh, rebellious, mostly men um, uh, uh, who are painting abstractly and, you know, doing, you know, really interested in kind of personal and existential uh, explorations. And, and these were, you know, Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko and um, the whole crew of abstract expressionists. So we call and, them the, the sort of the anti-establishment establishment? Yes. I mean, that, and that's, of course, the funny thing, right? Because it's always kind of, you know, the artists start at a periphery and then are moved to the center and then are replaced. And, you know, one of the, the things that I sort of write about in my book, too, is it's, you know, how do we tell this story of these outliers without kind of denaturing the very fact that part of what they were doing was sort of working at the very edge of, um, of Manhattan and of this moment, but then also, you know, quietly offering this whole different model um, for how we might think about creativity and, and what art history is. So I think, you know, the, the artists that came to the slip, interestingly, they all came from outside of New York and kind of found their way there by various artist networks of, hey, do you know where there's a cheap place to live? And um, at the time downtown, there were a lot of sort of empty um, warehouses. So they were sort of squatting there in illegal, you know, it was illegal for them to be living there, but they um, managed to do that. And, um, and they were really, you know, they had, many of them had come from you know, had had traveled to Europe and kind of absorbed that history there too, and not really found a place for themselves there. And but were, were didn't feel that they had a place within abstract expressionism either. And so it was this kind of moment of well, what could be next? Or you know, just as the kind of you know, as you say, the rebellious anti-establishment was being cemented as the next kind of big thing, abstract expressionism. These artists were kind of you know, moving away from that. Um, some of them never were remotely involved in even thinking about that kind of work, that kind of painting. And, um, and really beginning to explore other, other aspects of, of creativity and what they could make. And one of the um, things that I think drove them or spurred them was the materials that they, you know, was the material and the kind of spirit of the street where they found themselves. So suddenly they were um, in the midst of a kind of um, demolition zone because there was a huge amount of um, development happening in Manhattan at the time. And buildings were literally, you know, being raised all around them on the slip um, in this moment when the sort of financial center of Manhattan, all these skyscrapers were just being built. And um, and they they were poor artists without, you know, some of, you know, Indiana didn't even have money to buy canvas. And so he was pulling down the hemisote panels in his, um, in his loft to paint on and finding old columns from buildings that had been ripped down, which in turn had been, 
you know, the masts of ships. So there's just this kind of wonderful um, continuing recycling and um, reusing of the materials of past uh, industry and past sort of commercial life of Manhattan. And I really, I loved thinking about that story too, that I think is sort of less told in art history, which tends to really focus more on a kind of artistic lineage as opposed to one that's bringing in place and materials and all these kind of, you know, peripheral aspects of of the space where an artist works. Yeah, the 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 place is uh, remarkable, uh, named after 17th century Dutch settlers. Um, I assume they had a good view of the Statue of Liberty, certainly something uniquely American about the place, the slip. Was there also something American? You note that um, one or two of them had come from Europe, but that were they reacting against, in a way, the, the European influence on American modern art? Is there something peculiarly, uniquely American about this? I mean, I think that they, you know, and again, each had a very different path, even Youngerman and Kelly, who were, who met at Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris as two Americans there on the GI Bill after the war and became friends there. I mean, even, you know, Kelly and Youngerman had sort of very different approaches and paths to come back to the States. But I do think that there was um, something, you know, particularly American about a lot of the interests that these artists were bringing into their work because Kelly and Youngerman realized that there wasn't a kind of place for them in contemporary French painting. It was, it, it didn't, it wasn't a scene for them ultimately. And even while they were going to Giacometti's studio and Brancusi's studio and meeting this kind of older generation of artists um, who had established this incredible modernist tradition, the more contemporary scene um, was not something that they really felt that they had a place uh, a place in. And so you do have, you know, I think with the lineage of Melville, Herman Melville, for mm. instance, who very fam famously in the opening, you know, um, lines of Moby Dick or the whale um, mentions, you know, Quentin Slip as this kind of place where um, the, the boundary of which when you're walking around uh, New York, and you can kind of stand and have these ocean reveries. And, um, you know, Walt Whitman is writing so many poems about the ferries and this this part of New York as well. And so it is true that that and the, that kind of American, very American um, legacy is picked up by Robert Indiana in many of the works that he makes while on the slip, as well as, you know, thinking about um, just this kind of yeah, I think I think this this sense of um, wanting to to think about you know something that would be totally new and um, and and fresh and of course that's always impossible in a certain sense but um, but I think was was really um, a part of what they were all hoping to to accomplish and find there and you know you have someone like Lenore Tawney who was really a revelation for me. I, I knew her name, but I did not know much of her work at all. And the work I did know was more of her kind of older, um, her work that she made later in her life. And when she moves to the slip in 1957, and she just starts making these incredibly ambitious um, uh, woven forms um, on her loom. And they are, you know, 
she's hanging them from the sail pulleys in her loft in order to be able to to um, to make them. You know, they don't fit in a in a single um, space. She has to kind of stand up on her beams, like crawl up on the beams of her studio in order to see the full um, the full form. And she's looking outside, literally, you know, from her um, from her studio, she can see the East River and she can see the tugboats that have the same kind of knots on them to you know not hit against other boats that she is then using to uh, finish and tie the ends of her weaving. So there's you know lots of kind of you know wonderful material moments like that where the artist in Ellsworth Kelly is buying some of his um, canvas from a a, a sale making um, supply store. So you know there's just these kind of wonderful crossover moments of um, American industry and American history that are happening there too. Of course, slightly to the north in Greenwich Village, there was a great deal of cultural ferment of one kind or another. I'm not sure about modern art, but certainly music and writing. Were the group of artists that you, you write about in the slip, were they connected with that, with, with, with jazz, with writing, with, with, with the beat movement? Well, there's a kind of fascinating crossover moment that happens. In many ways, no. I mean, I think they were a kind of separate um, community, although, of course, there's always interesting intersections. And, you know, Warhol, not, not at all as part of the beat moment, but Warhol comes down and, you know, has this amazing um, moment where he makes this film with Indiana, which I write about in the book. Um, and, and so there was a lot of interesting cross-pollination between very different kind of artists. And that's, you know, something that was a constant, like, wonderful surprise and, you know, fascination of you know, who ended up, who was there, you know, the Anais Nin came to Lenore Tawney's studio. Um, but there was, there was um, a, a moment where um, Delphine Serig ended up starring in Pull My Daisy, this kind of quintessential beat um, movie or video film that um, Alfred Leslie and Robert Frank make. Uh, in 1958, and she's kind of one of the main characters in it. And it was, you know, just kind of circumstance that she, you know, ended up there in that role. And it was actually a very difficult um, filming experience for her. But that, you know, at the time, she was a bit frustrated by that experience. But then, you know, very shortly thereafter, that that film became such a cult classic and, and really was kind of cemented as this central, um, artifact in a way of the beat movement. So it's kind of fascinating that this French, this young French actor um, who would go on to be such a, a superstar and such an interesting politically engaged uh, public figure in France when she moves back to France um, in 1961, that, that in this early moment of her life, she's, you know, in this, in this beat Beat movie. It's interesting that you mentioned Robert Frank. Uh, Springsteen was very influenced by Frank, and Nebraska looks back to the 50s. Uh, I'm not sure if he was familiar with any of the artists in the slip. I'm somewhat doubtful. Uh, but certainly it was a period of great cultural ferment and, and, and relevance, particularly looking back in, in the 2020s. What, what, what does your research and this movement, I mean, whether it's a movement or not, where, what this New York street, what does it tell us, not just about American art in the modern art in the 2020s, but America itself? Mm, that's such a good question. 
Well, you know, I on the week that uh, Bobby comes out, Prue. So. Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly. In our the Bar Barbenheimer moment, right. how how does my book relate? I, I need to relate it to Barbie in order to get any traction here. Um, well, actually, it it is. There are a lot of um, moments around the role of um, the woman, kind of in, in the domestic space, and. Um, how Agnes Martin and Lenore Tani are really rebelling against this, the kind of nuclear family conformity that really um, happens in a pretty major way in this moment as a kind of socio-political um, move to shore up against communism. And also it's a, you know, sadly a moment of really entrenched um, homophobia after a period of, you know, relative freedom in the early 20th century. Um, so, so certainly, you know, there are some political, socio-political and cultural threads that we tie through. But I think for, for me, one of the important things when I was writing the book is I didn't want to be nostalgic, too nostalgic. I feel like, you know, especially as someone I was not alive during this, you know, in this period. And I, I feel like, you know, it's such a common, almost cliche when you move to New York, everyone always says, oh yeah, like 10 years ago was the best time to be here. And there was this amazing scene, you know, or 20 years ago. Um, so I, I did want to, and, and one of the things when I was interviewing Jack Youngerman, who, you know, is one of the artists and is kind of the, one of the sort of heart of the, the book in a way, um, since I had a chance to speak with him for over three years and he was such a generous and just incredible philosopher artist really um, in, in so many ways. Um, and, um, and he, you know, he warned me, don't, he's like, don't, don't, don't romanticize this. Don't think it was you know, because I was looking at these pictures of his loft and I said, Oh, it's so, it's so beautiful. And, and, you know, and he said, no, it, it's, it look it's beautiful because it's kind of this minimalist aesthetic that we have now but that's just because we couldn't afford to have anything and you know it that that ceiling it took you know three weeks and to to sort of you know to sand down with plaster falling on us and it was you know in, intensely hot in the summer which i feel very much right now as it's 96 degrees here in manhattan um and very very cold in the winter and you know all the kind of struggles of so i do i think that um for me, also one of the things I was trying to pull pull out of the book is, you know, what what did that what can that moment also tell us about um, this kind of model for what I call in the book collective solitude or a way of thinking about a community where everyone is is living alone and having you know able to kind of be very independent and have their own space and their own thinking and really their own you know very um, individual. Uh, creative path, but there's also this community there that's that's kind of helping to support you in very small and large ways and not always specific to art. So yes, Kelly was introducing Betty Parsons, his gallerist, to to younger men and to to others at the slip. And Lenore Tawney was helping Robert Indiana pay his electrical bills and you know also really supporting Agnes Martin in a time of difficult mental health for her. But also, um, you know, they were uh, they were you know helping each other to just um, you know think about art and to um, to be able to work to have this space to work even as you know they didn't have a lot of money and they didn't have um, a lot of you know space to um, to do that except for at the slip and so you know how can we think about that model 
in, in a moment like today. And it's hard, I think, from a real estate perspective to imagine a Riverview loft for $35 or the equivalent of $35 a month um, anymore for artists in Manhattan. But I do think there's something around, you know, how we can hopefully create cultural spaces where people can feel like they have, they can create a community and um, that, that people can really be, um, can come together, but also have the space to, to do what they want to do. Uh, yeah, alongside your review, uh, there's an interesting piece in the Times today about the reinvention of forgotten old buildings in the Hudson Valley. I was just up in Hudson, actually, with my son a couple of weeks ago, and it's in the process of being reinvented. It seems as if the art world has shifted from the slip to um, to uh, to Brooklyn or other parts of Manhattan and Brooklyn and now has left the city entirely. Um, is that fair? So much has happened, obviously, in the 70 years since, since, since the late 50s. But in terms of the history of, of, of art and where young, creative, talented artists would live, is that fair? I mean, I think that's certainly part of the story. And I think, you know, you do see the kind of, you know, when you look at kind of surveys of where people who identify as artists are living, even, you know, within the five boroughs, it's much more kind of expanded than this kind of, you know, heat map of Manhattan, you know, and Soho and Chelsea and all these, you know, neighborhoods that you had um, in the later um, decades of the 20th century. I also, you know, I think that artists are really, um, uh, you know, really creative in how they can make things work. And I think, you know, we, of course, part, that's a huge part of the story of the slip is like how, how these artists even were able to transform these buildings into places where they could um, live and make their work, but also, um, you know, I think you do still see that today. And so you have something like, you know, a gallery, there's a small gallery in Brooklyn called Parent Company Gallery that's in a shipping container. And it's in this sort of vacant lot in downtown Brooklyn between these like, crazy new high rise um, apartment buildings. And it, you know, I, I think that artists are, very, you know, artists will find these spaces and these ways to, um, to kind of make things work. And Jane Jacobs was incredibly um, prescient about this when, you know, in her mm. death and life of great American cities that, you know, that's 1961, but some of those chapters, you, you reread them and it's, you know, she's talking about the kind of reuse of buildings, the creative reuse of buildings and the kind of need for that to create, you know, truly diverse neighborhood blocks. And then you read the Surgeon General's report on loneliness as an epidemic and many of the kind of recommendations around how to, um, you know, to, to overcome that have to do with, you know, are on the neighborhood level of, you know, a space for people to come together, but also a place where people can, you know, have their solitude protected. I mean, I was very, um, very, very pleased to see that there was a kind of glossary in the front of that major report that just came out that was defining different terms. And one of the terms was solitude. And it was designed, defined in a positive way as, you know, it's like, like loneliness, like not being lonely, but being alone. And, you know, and I think that that, that is such a necessary aspect for 
creative work. I mean, Gertrude Stein talks about this too, like the kind of two, mm. two countries where a writer lives, like where they are physically and then the kind of space in their head. And, you know, I think that that's, um, that's such a crucial, that's such a crucial aspect of any kind of geographic location for an artist. So I, I would, I, I guess I'm trying to be optimistic even in a moment where I do think it's, you know, yes, I think that the slip was a very, you know, in part just because of the uniqueness of its geographic location, it was a very um, specific moment that, you know, was very short lived in part because of the precariousness of, um, of, of that moment. But I do think there's, there's pieces of it that I would hope we can still find carrying through in, in how people are trying to, um, to live and, and make work. Is the most dramatic event since in, in the period between 1958 and now the 9-11, um, the 9-11 the, the attacks and its impact on the neighborhood. Now, I used to know that neighborhood. I, I didn't know the slip, but I used to go down there before 9-11. Now it's just dramatic. It could be a new world, an entirely different city. How has today the slip survived um nigh, the, the not just 9-11 but the rebuilding of the neighborhood yeah i mean you know of course and you see um you know the city goes through so many lives um since since the 17th century um in that in that area and you know certainly um september 11th was a you know had a profound impact you know obviously not just on downtown new york but on the entire city um, and ultimately world. But I, um, what's interesting is that I think um, already, you know, you, there's still this kind of constant churn and change so that buildings that were going up even, you know, right after the artist left the slip are now already, you know, being replaced by other buildings or, you know, being transitioning into different kinds of buildings, you know, transitioning from commercial spaces into residential and um, vice versa. So it's, it's kind of, it's fascinating to see that the constant evolution there of the artists' buildings um, where they lived on the slip, only one of them remains today, but you can, you can go down to, you know, Quenty Slip is a street still. Um, it looks much, much different, much more kind of commercial and, um, than, than it did in the, even in the period when the artists were living there. And, um, but there is, you know, one of the buildings does still stand, 3-5 Coenti Slip, where Elspeth Kelly and Rosenquist and Martin and um, Ann Wilson and, you know, several of the other um, artists did live. So it is, and you can, you know, there, there's the Siemens Church Institute no longer exists, which was this really incredible um, place. It was built in 1913 at the very end of the slip for as a sort of home base for um, sailors on shore leave. And, you know, that was a place that the artists would go to, um, to be able to have a hot shower, to eat in the cafeteria. They had a really amazing library. Um, they had these very cool ship models that Indiana was fascinated by. Um, and another artist, Fred Mitchell, actually taught some drawing classes there as well. So, there was just all these different communities there. And I think now when you go, it's a little bit harder to feel all that, all those different communities that. Um, yeah, I'm going to be in New York there. next week. Maybe I'll come down and have a look. Finally, um, uh, Prue, we, uh, we did a show with John Michaud. He wrote a history of 
a bar, neighborhood bar in uptown Manhattan. He believes that uh, you can see New York best or capture New York best through a neighborhood bar. The Another guy who came on the show recently, Michael Kimmelman, the architecture correspondent, columnist of the New York Times, believes that New York should be savored on foot. Your book, The Slip, obviously is about a street. It's a cultural history. Are you suggesting that we see New York through a street or we can do cultural history through geography? I think, I think hopefully both are possible. Um, I think, you know, to, to be able to, you know, you can really see a kind of micro history of, of, a, of a place through looking very closely at it, one single thing. And it, it's helpful that a place, a place like Coiny Slip, which had such a, a crazy history of being both literally the central market of, you know, the early, um, early New York, and then, you know, not so long after one of the most obscure, hidden sort of secrets of the same city. So, I think you know you can kind of trace a history in that way, but I am also hoping to suggest that we do you know it's helpful and we we can kind of draw out perhaps more generous or inclusive stories around art history and even you know history writ large if we um, if we think about place in a, as a more kind of central protagonist to you know how what someone makes in the world and how they're inspired and and you know how they how they're kind of how they are, you know, who, who they are and, and what they're doing um, in that space, in that moment of creativity.